Direct from the astronomy capital of Australia comes the Astro Podcast. An irregular series of interviews with interesting astro people about the projects and passions that keep their eyes to the sky. Welcome to Astro Podcast. You're here with Alison. Today we interview the famous Rob McNaught. You might know him from asteroids such as 3904 Honda or maybe Comet C2006P1. Who could forget that one? Uh, It's a great interview. You get to learn a lot about Rob and his background and the work that he does. So enjoy. I'll be back at the end of the podcast for a chat. I'm here with Robert McNaught, um, world famous <laughs> NEO uh, asteroid and comet hunter. Can I call you that, or is that too supermanish? Uh, Rob's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, and we're going to have a conversation here on Astro Podcast about Rob McNaught and the work that he does. Uh, we've also got some questions that have come in from various places on the internet that we will ask Rob as well. Um, usually what we start with, Rob, is can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, how did you get into astronomy? Uh, what school you went to, or, or if you did or you didn't? Um, hmm, okay. So take it away. Right, um, well, you can tell from my accent I'm not uh, a native Aussie. I grew up in southwest Scotland, a town called Preswick. Um, Preswick at the time had an international airport. It, it had been... Um, uh, a major air base during the Second World War, and there was a um, an American uh, um, no not fleet. There's American air base associated with it, and there was uh, <laughs> I almost said international sea rescue. No, thund- <laughs> Thunderbirds weren't based there. There was a sea rescue base there. So when when I grew grew up, uh, I certainly had a, a bit of an interest in aircraft and technology. And my father worked at Scottish Aviation, where they, they built um, twin pioneers, which were used in places like Papua New Guinea with short takeoff and landing. Um, the first specific interest I had in astronomy, um, I've always dated it to the age of seven, but I've never been able to confirm that I was seven years old. And it was a Sunday school prize giving. For, for good attendance, I was given a book, which I didn't want. And a friend was given Timothy's Book of Space, which he didn't yeah. want. So we dutifully uh, went to the Sunday school teacher and said, is it possible to change the, uh, oh, I don't know what you call the little Swapping. plaque oh. in the, in All the right, front. All right, yes. And, yeah, and she, and she removed them and swapped them over. So I ended up with Timothy's Book of Space, which I absolutely loved. It had, um, you know, the, the, well, this, this would be, you know, the very, very early 60s. Um, and uh, had pictures of astronauts on Mars, or, or cosmos. I, I mm. assume they were astronauts. I mean, it was a, <laughs> probably an American publication. Yeah, but, that's right. um, you know, and pictures of uh, Mars dogs with long ears. And I thought, just thought that was fantastic. But I obviously had an interest prior to that to want the book. Yeah. Um, so exactly how how much prior to approximately age of seven, I'm not sure. Sure. Okay. So from seven till. University, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it probably developed largely through the Apollo mission, the space race and the Apollo missions. Um, certainly in primary school, 
whenever the topic of space was brought up, I was always the one the questions were directed to. Mm. You know, and I, 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 I was quite clear that the first people on the moon would be Russians. Well, I remember very so clearly close. being asked that and, and yeah. being quite certain that the first men on the moon would be Russians. Um, but certainly that's, that's how things were, were developing in the, um, the early 1960s. You know, Russia took the lead. You know, Ameri the Americans, a bit shocked at first, managed to... Uh, Did you have plans to become an astronaut yourself? Mm, oh, probably not. Um, I was I was actually born with a disability in my left leg, which meant I had quite a bit of time in hospital with operations. But um, I don't think I ever <laughs> believed there was any possibility. So I, I don't think it was anything I ever considered. Um, I, um, because my father worked at Scottish Aviation, he'd often bring home aviation magazines, and there was a, there was a lot of content about space missions and you know a bit about astronomy in it. You know, I'd cut those all out, and every year there'd be a a poster of all these spacecraft launch and future planned missions, and you know, I'd have those up on my wall and scrutinise them every year. And I actually, I, after my um, my father died and my mother moved out of the the home I'd uh, um, lived in for most of my childhood, um, I brought most of my you know old childhood reminiscences out back out to Australia, mm. and going through them, I, I was just amazed at how much. Well, I didn't have that many scrapbooks, but just just how much I had collected. I've, yeah, I've got a bit of <laughs> obsessive compulsive disorder in collecting things, but um, yeah, I had a, I had a lot of stuff from the um, you know the early early space missions. Um, I think after the uh, the moon landings in the late sixties, it sort of began to to sure. drop off a bit. And my interest had by that time turned more towards astronomy in my sure. in my teens, and I joined the. Junior Astronomical Society in um, in, uh, in the Great Britain, and uh, uh, they, they they had a magazine of general astronomy, but they were geared more to the amateur astronomer, you know, go out and do things, and yes. have projects for amateurs to do. And, you know, yeah, that's, right. how, that's how I really sort of got into astronomy. <laughs> and um, so then, I mean. You ended up with a paying job somewhere along the line with astronomy. How did that come about? Um, it was, yeah, I've been so lucky in my life. Um, because I was a very keen amateur astronomer and I wanted in some way to contribute to something of you know, scientific value. So mm -hmm. I was always keen to know what um, projects you could get involved, with, uh, involved in that would um, help professional astronomers. And uh, be, being in Scotland, um, there were some, well, <laughs> first of all, being in Scotland, how do you become interested in observing when the sky's cloudy so mm. often? But um, and they do. There's a lot of active amateur astronomers in Scotland. They don't get to do very much, but it doesn't, <laughs> They're very keen. It doesn't stop them being very keen. <laughs> yes. um, but uh, one of the aspects of being at a um, northern latitude or... Uh, polar latitude, I should really say, yeah. is uh, you get the chance to see the aurora. Yes. You know, in the northern sky, the aurora borealis, and the southern sky, the aurora australis, but basically they're mi mirror images of each other. So um, uh, I, uh, I took an interest in um, recording um, um, aurora and reporting them to the Balfour Stewart Auroral Laboratory. At, uh, it was based at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and uh, in addition to that, during, during the summer months, when the, there's 
perpetual twilight. You know, there's only about four hours of twilight um, between sort of sunset and sunrise at our latitude. Mm. Actually, it's maybe, it's maybe a bit bit more than that. So there's maybe about four hours of deep twilight and a couple yes. of hours of bright twilight. Um, you often see noctilucent clouds, which um, are really a meteorological phenomenon, but they're at such a high altitude, about um, 80 kilometres, that you don't um, ever see them unless the sky's a bit dark. The sun's sufficiently low that it's still... Sh um, the sky's blue, but the sun's still shining up onto this lit thin layer of cloud mm. um, at the at the uh, mesopause, which is a boundary between between <laughs> between the, is it stratosphere and the mesosphere? That's really bad. I've I've, um, I've not seen that Tulsant cloud now for about thirty or so years since mm. I left Scotland, and it's all yeah. becoming a bit hazy. Um, but there's this boundary layer um, which is fairly stable that. Um, um, particulates can um, uh, can fall from above towards, and moisture from below can rise towards. Um, although generally the stratosphere is a good barrier for moisture, and there's very little moisture gets above the stratosphere. Pretty well, well every day, all the clouds we see are uh, below 15 kilometers. I mean, the yes. highest clouds are only around 15 kilometers, and you know these are up at 80. Yeah. So um, there was always an issue as to you know what what were the particles that the um, the water was condensing on or were forming ice on, um, and uh, how how did the water get up to that? I'm sure these have all been answered. I'm sorry <laughs> to say I don't, don't know what the answers are, um, but they're, they're very beautiful crowds. They're pearly white, and um, they're often fairly intricately in, <laughs> intricately structured. Um, a, a bit like cirrus clouds, but anyway, during during the the, the dark parts of the year there was aurora, and the, the bright parts of the year there was uh, noctilucent clouds. And I, you know, I dutifully note all the details down and report them in. And the the Balfour Stewart or lab were um, um, mm -hmm. recording both of those. Right. But, uh, it was pretty much all naked eye astronomy. I did um, um, meteors, shooting stars. Yeah. Noting numbers and you know how many came from different showers, mm -hmm. and again the Junior Astronomical Society, and later I joined the British Astronomical Association, which is um, more more for the, the sort of serious amateur. Um, yes. Whereas you know the Junior Astronomical Society by its name is very much just introducing you, um, and in a sense they sort of pass you on to the British Astronomical Association. Sure. So yeah, pre pretty much it's all been naked eye astronomy I've done throughout my life. Okay. So you're out here at Siding Spring now, <laughs> here at Coonabarabran. Um, what can you tell us about your current project, which has been going on for a while? Um, well, I've been working um, since 1990 on various projects to do searching for near-Earth asteroids or, or near-Earth objects, which mm. includes comets that um, pass uh, close to the Earth as well. Um, the, the initial project was um, run by Duncan Steele, and he was, um, I guess he was the first person in Australia that uh, that really took the issue seriously to the extent of, you know, setting up a, a program and, you know, doing all the effort to, to get the funding. And uh, uh, it was actually a very successful program, but piggybacking on the UK Schmidt um, plates, Mm -hmm. So those were photographic plates doing surveys of the southern sky, 
basically replicating in the south what the Palomar Sky Survey had done at Mount Palomar in the north. Um, uh, that program uh, ran out of money in uh, 1996, um, but then in 1998, Steve Larson from the University of Arizona um, got money together to um, uh, refurbish the Uppsala Schmidt, uh, which was an old photographic um, telescope at Siding Spring, and it was largely unused because it was photographic. It mm. was, by that time, we were well into the CCD era, and, and basically... Um, Students and researchers didn't want to to use take photographs anymore. They wanted to the, yeah. the higher efficiency and um, ease of using a CCD. So um, uh, Steve Larson from the University of Arizona got um, a NASA grant to operate um, uh, a telos a 0.7 meter Schmidt in Catalina Mountains, just north of Tucson, and to refurbish the Uppsala Schmidt to do the same thing. With all the same equipment, just a slightly smaller telescope in, in Australia. Um, uh, initially, I was doing follow-up work of known asteroids um, and still looking at some Schmidt plates, although the, the, the UK Schmidt program um, basically uh, petered out in the, uh, the late 90s and uh, early 2000s and transferred to just taking spectra. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, the CCD... Once it was installed on the Hampshire Schmidt, um, you know, it very quickly started producing results. And, yes. Uh, and over the years, as they uh, enhanced the software, um, the uh, particularly the Catalina Schmidt, and then later another um, telescope, one and a half meter telescope that they um, they um, modified to use as a um, Search telescope, which is just uh, it's fairly close to the Catalina Schmidt, mm -hmm. so their two telescopes really dominated world discoveries. Yep. Um, the UK, uh, not UK Schmidt, the Uppsala Schmidt at Siding Spring, um, it never quite got up into the discovery rates of of those telescopes. Partly because it was a longer focal length, so we're looking at a smaller patch of sky, yes. and it had a smaller aperture. The one big advantage it did have was it was the only southern search program. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now it's still the only Southern Search Programme um, because of its small aperture and the fact that the surveys have now been going, the CCD surveys have now been going um, uh, consistently for what oh, will be, be approaching almost 20 years now yeah. since um, um, Space Watch at Kitt Peak um, got mm -hmm. going. Um, the discovery rate of the, the brighter objects which the Uppsala Schmidt can see is, is beginning to drop. Mm -hmm. we, we're, still, we're still finding about 10% of the largest objects of you know, approximately one kilometre or larger, um, but uh, it's estimated there's only around 70 or so, 50 to 70 left of those yeah. to be discovered. Um, so our discovery rate is, is um, dropping a bit. But the biggest difference is the other telescopes are beginning to find many, many more smaller objects, which we are not seeing at all. Right, right. But we are finding 20% of all the world's um, comets. Uh, yeah. Discovered. So, you know, that 20% can't be bad. But only a small proportion of those are um, Earth crossers. Yeah. Um, that could be called near-Earth comets. There's only a very small number of those. Sure. But, you know, we're, we're still the only southern survey that's out there looking. Sure. So can you explain then just the basic process of what you would go through to do 
a discovery or, you know, to... Okay, there's a, a number of ways you can go about it. Um, uh, in, in ye olden days, when you looked at photographic plates, um, asteroids were often called the vermin of the skies because they produced little trails on your photographs. Mm. So if you're wanting to photograph, you know, some galaxies or, or whatever, and you've got these trails all over it, you know, it could be quite mm. a nuisance. And, you know, they, they were actually called the vermin of the skies. Um, because asteroids are orbiting around the sun, and you know the Earth's orbiting around the sun, when you're taking a photograph, you've you've got to point your telescope at the stars and keep it pointing at the stars to compensate for the Earth's rotation. Um, but any asteroid will show up as a moving object. Mm -hmm. um, that's why you got the trails on the photographs. To, uh, you know, again, the olden days, one-hour exposures were were quite common, so you get quite long trails. Um, but with CCDs, which are much um, more sensitive, you can take exposures of only tens of seconds and get down to the same sort of brightness levels that you were yeah. with uh, photography. Um, and in those short exposures, often the asteroids will not show any motion at all. So it's not a question of looking for trails. You, you have to take um, a number of exposures. There's various methods. The, the method we use is we take a number of exposures over the course of about 45 minutes, say about 50 minutes apart, you take a, a short exposure of the same patch of sky. Mm -hmm. So you have four exposures, 15 minutes apart, of the exactly the same patch of sky with um, asteroids appearing stationary in each individual photograph, but 15 minutes later they'll have moved slightly. Mm. So by comparing the, the four images, um, you ignore all the objects which are in the same position in all four four images, yep. um, and that you're then left over with sort of orphaned images that only appear in that position on one one image, um, and so you get four lists of sure. images that don't seem to correspond, and you then look for um, four images over the four frames that show a, a consistent motion, right. and, uh, and the software then says, this might be a real object, you know. Um, Okay. Look at it with your eye and make the final decision. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've set it up such that it's picking up a lot of background noise. So the major, if we're looking at a region of sky where we don't expect any asteroids to be, basically asteroids are in a flat plane in the solar system mm -hmm. between Mars and Jupiter. And if you, if you if you look in the ecliptic or, or the zodiac, because it's called in more popular terms, mm -hmm. in the plane of the solar system, you'll see lots and lots of asteroids. But if you yep. look perpendicular to it, basically if you look straight up. Um, uh, 90 degrees from the sun um, you don't really expect any asteroids there and typically uh, when you take a, um, a photograph there, there will be no asteroids down to about you know 20th magnitude sure. if you don't know the magnitudes that's very faint it's, yes, it's pretty it faint, 20th magnitude <laughs> yeah. um, so typically we'll have um, maybe about um, 20 to 40 false detections in a blank field right um, and that, that's just, it's picking up, uh, just peaks in the noise mm. and finding four peaks that sort of fit together. Yeah. But the eye is very good at saying, um, yeah, this this is more or less typical of the background noise we're seeing around it. Right. Um, it's not really showing the um, char characteristic profile of a, an image that light that's passed through the telescope. And occasionally it's things like um, uh, cosmetic defects in the in the um, CCD chip, sure. the detector, or internal reflections in the um, 
in the telescope from bright stars. Sure. So that the eye can often make these decisions very well. In fact, you do make these decisions very quickly. Um, having having been look at, looking at thousands of false detections every night for yes. f- fifteen years. Wow. Yes. Oh no no it's not it's not, it's not, it's not even it's not even ten years. Um, Still, it's quite a, yeah. quite a long period of time. You, you, You'd be able to pick it up straight yeah. away. Yeah, you, you make you make that decision in a fraction of a second, and and quite quite often, uh, you're making the decision in retrospect uh, to save time. You've clicked onto the next object, already saying that's not real, and right. then then your mind suddenly clicks. Hang on, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you'll you'll go back and think, well, yeah, look at it closely. Nah, nah, it's not real. But occasionally, it's yeah, maybe that is real. I'll just I'll just check it, and you follow it up, and you know. It, might actually be a real object but when you have a real object uh, it's not close to the um, noise level mm-hmm. you just see immediately you've got you know bang 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 four four clear images in circles sure and um, so so what happens then you report it to someone or uh, yeah there's um, uh, an organization under the auspices of the International Astronomical Union that's a professional body um, for uh, astronomers um, they're based, oh, now, are they still based at Harvard University? <laughs> I should know this. Um, I, I think possibly there's been some sort of uh, um, change, but I think they're still based at, at Harvard. Um, they uh, collate all discoveries that are made worldwide, so if when you make a, a potential discovery, you, you report it directly to them. Um, if, if you have reason to believe it's... Um, an unusual asteroid, one that's say close to the Earth, mm-hmm. um, you'll report it as a possible near-Earth object, um, and so long as you've got that in your subject line of the email that you report it in, um, it then gets automatically processed as a possible new near-Earth object. Right. Um, and their routines will extract the data from your email, check to see if it's reasonably a mm-hmm. near-Earth object, and, and you know. Check it's not a known object as well. Yeah. What what um, class is a near Earth object? Oh, so How an, close an, do you have to be yeah. to be near? Um, it's a very um, loose definition. It really means anything that can pass um, uh, within 1.3 astronomical units of the sun, in, inside 1.3 astronomical units of the sun. Now, an astronomical unit is the mean distance of the Earth from the sun, mm-hmm. r- roughly about 150 million kilometres. So uh, if you add 30% to that, which is an extra 40 mm. million, <laughs> 50 million kilometres. Um, so r- roughly any asteroid that comes within about 200 million kilometres of the sun would sure. be called um, a near-Earth near okay. asteroid or comet. Yep. Um, but of course that doesn't necessarily mean they come anywhere near the Earth. That's Even right. if they cross the Earth's orbit and get closer to the sun than, than one astronomical unit, the, you know, the, than the Earth's distance... Uh, they might be sufficiently skewed to the Earth's orbit that you know the yeah it's never going to go anywhere yeah, near yeah at least not not in the not in the short term the, right. the, or, the orbits do mo- get modified over the millennia but um, yes yeah so um, so a day in the life of Robin oh, when you wake up <laughs> when you sleep oh yeah my sleep's all it's been it's been I've had very fractured sleep for. Well, basically all my life, actually, since I was a keen amateur astronomer. Um, I, it's nice when I'm not observing uh, or over full moon 
and I could have several nights of you know getting just a mm. full night's sleep. Even then, it's a bit it's a bit fractured, but it's it's not necessarily a sleep problem because even though I wake up quite a lot, I don't have I don't dwell on it and I don't yeah. have trouble getting back to sleep. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think it's a sort of lifestyle that a lot of people might have trouble with. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I know I certainly yes. do. Um, so it's. Um, I had some questions from some people on the internet, and one of them was, uh, "Do you observe for pleasure?" Um, well, I actually, <laughs> um, I, I used to be a, a very active amateur astronomer, um, mm -hmm. but once I became a professional astronomer, I, I felt that, especially because I was doing a job I really uh, loved. Yes, um, I didn't. Um, I didn't have that need that had to be satiated by my amateur activities. Sure. So, um, to, to a large extent, I, I gave them up in the oh, early 1990s. Sure. Way around then. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're just a <laughs> just have been too obsessive to have been <laughs> in, in my non-work hours doing basically what I'm doing during my work hours. Yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd always had a love of natural history. My um, my uncle in Scotland had always been a very keen bird watcher. Mm -hmm. and I'd uh, quite often gone out bird watching with him. Um, so that's something I took up when I sort of became a proper professional astronomer. Mm -hmm. um, now, nowadays, I'm actually spending <laughs> too much time working doing my um, work astronomy. Um, yeah. So. Uh, do you That's, get to go up to the Pilliga to do some bird yeah, watching, or is it, yeah, it, was, is it nice I was, up at... I was in the Pilliga just uh, Saturday morning with the Pilliga bird watchers. And, yeah. Oh, for uh, people that don't know, that's an area close to us that has some amazing bird life, and lots of visitors come from around the world to, yeah, to check a, it out. A million wild acres. Yes. Yeah. I back onto it. <laughs> um, just to finish up, the um, the big question we that we got from many people was, of course, when we start talking about asteroids and then there's the media hysteria that whenever something near, I'm waving my arms around, <laughs> quotation marks, um, they wanted to know, is uh, anything coming our way that we should be worried about? Well, at the, mo at the moment there's a thunderstorm. At the, at the moment there's a thunderstorm yes, coming our way, so we might have to get this done quickly. But, um, um, well, there's um, a good-sized asteroid. Now, again, I should probably have done some homework. I think it's a three-kilometer-sized asteroid with a one in three hundred chance of hitting the Earth. Now, one in three hundred—that's pretty big. Yes. Um, now, I could tell you the day and the minutes that it's going to happen because we know exactly where the Earth's going to be at the time it happens. And if the asteroid is going to hit, um, you know, the, the, the skew, will it, uh, the, the, the orbit, um, if, if the orbit's sufficiently skewed to the Earth or uh, the, the asteroid isn't sufficiently uh, along the path of the orbit where it intersects the Earth, uh, it's got to be at that intersection. And yes. we know when the Earth will get to that intersection to within, yeah. within minutes. Uh, but I do know the year. The year is 2880. Oh, okay. well, I'm planning to be alive then, right. but I don't know whether right. I will be. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, I don't know. A head in a jar, there's probably not a great deal you can do about yeah, trying to right. uh, <laughs> no running and prevent screaming. it. But, um, 
but the, ch the chances are that uh, within the next um, decades, uh, yeah. additional observations of that will yeah. we'll refine that sufficiently. But there are um, small effects that modify asteroids' orbits. Um, and you've really got to take a sort of long-term monitoring approach just to see how these, you know, very, very minor non-gravitation effects, like yeah. uh, um, just uh, uh, em emit emitting yeah, the heat that it's been absorbing, yeah. and um, and that just gives a, a very small um, small push to its to its orbit. Um, that that's often fairly insignificant in the short term, but in the long term, it can make it drift into say a resonance with Jupiter, which can then, you know, really give it a, a mm. kick and change it into a significantly different orbit. So yeah. it, in, in the long term, it can have significant effect. Um, in, the, in the short term, not so much. Yeah. Um, other asteroids, well, there's, there's an asteroid called Apophis, which, oh, again, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. Uh, I think it's 20, uh, 20, 20, 2029 and mm -hmm. 2036 will have close now, um, it was discovered at Kitt Peak, um, but the observations made over two nights didn't allow any any realistic orbit to be um, calculated. Mm. You could have you could have any orbit from one that hit the sun to one that wasn't uh, an NEO, and they'd right. all they'd all um, fit the observations equally well. Um, but six so five months later, my colleague Gordon Garrod at Siding Spring. Um, picked up a, an object and, you know, we reported it in the normal channels and it went on the uh, near-Earth object confirmation page. Uh, other amateurs observed it. And within within two days, it had a very reliable orbit that clearly indicated it was the same object that had been discovered at Kid Peak five months earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but a much better observation of it. Yeah, well, um, over two nights, you're, yeah. you're very limited in what you can do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the Kip Peak observations were okay. It's just they weren't adequate to characterise the orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, it was known it was an unusual object, but, you know, just exactly what the orbit yes. was, it wasn't known. Yeah. So, um, although the Siding Spring observations didn't get the discovery credit, they, they were the significant event in the whole process of... Um, the recognition that that object existed, and mm -hmm. you know, and it, it did have a very, very small moid minimum orbit intersection distance. That's the skewness between the asteroid's orbit and the Earth's orbit. Yep. Um, so in 2029, the asteroid will pass inside the distance of geostationary satellites. Uh, okay. <laughs> but not, but not actually through the plane of the geostationary no. <laughs> satellites. I shouldn't so much say plane of geostationary satellites. It's a very, very thin ring. Mm. Um, anyway, the the the, um, the asteroid will 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 pass through that, and um, depending on just exactly how close it comes to the Earth in 2029, will determine how close it will come to the Earth in 2036. Yep. Um, now, you can rule out a collision in 2029. You can't completely rule out a collision in 2036. Yeah. But, you know, we'll, we'll know after 2029. And how big was that one? We <laughs> um, oh, dear. Enough, um, to, enough to make you hard, worry. Oh, hundreds of metres. Hundreds yeah, of meters. it'll make a dent. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, it, yeah, it would, be, it would be a significant Yeah. A significant how big was Tung Tunguska? About 50 metres. Yeah, so it's bigger than yeah, that one. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, let's leave everyone happy <laughs> dwelling on those things. 
for something that's in the near future. Thanks so much for uh, talking to us, Rob. Yeah, no problem. It's been a pleasure. And that was Rob McNaught. Great uh, accent and love his story. If you love his story, how about going over to iTunes and leaving us a review and a small explanation of what you think the podcast is all about. This helps other people who are out there um, to find us and also to listen in. Make sure you're subscribed as well. Five-star reviews are always appreciated. Until next week. Thanks for listening to the Astro Podcast. Why not leave a comment and rating on iTunes so other people can listen in too? If you want to nominate someone to be interviewed, then send an email to alison at astropodcast.com and she'll do her best to make it so.